Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Out of the Frying Pan into the Funeral, written by John Gonzalez. A run-of-the-mill expose puts reporter Harry Horn on the hot seat. Harry Horn was a nice guy, a good journalist writing a series on juvenile delinquency and uncovering more dirt than he bargained for, especially on Louis Gellarmino, the bigwig mafia rackets boss who usually dropped a hint he was displeased in the form of a forty-five bullet. Vince Rinaldi was the grudge-holding head of the juvie gang featured in Harry's expose. Yet everything seemed fine on the day Harry got out of jail for refusing to name a source. But when Harry returned to his apartment, about to get lucky with the nightclub singer he had been pursuing for months, only to have a young woman step out of his shower clad in a towel, things started to go downhill quickly. The nightclub singer departed in a fury while the young woman dropped the towel, snatched up a gun, and shot Harry point blank. Soon everyone was on Harry Horn's tail, but out of the frying pan into the funeral wasn't an unusual condition for him to be in a hot-tempered, very neglected mafia wife, her 18-year-old lover in a black leather jacket with a switchblade, her missing maid-man husband who had been playing fast and loose with payoffs collected for the local capo de capos, a dozen juvenile delinquents who were ready to rumble and just as ready to harmonize when record producers dropped by, two tough-as-nails cops convinced that Harry Horn was guilty of everything, and a young woman with a penchant for shedding her clothes and trying to shoot Harry. It all adds up to one of journalist sleuth Harry Horn's craziest cases and roller coaster entertainment for the listener. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Out of the Frying Pan into the Funeral. 1. I shook hands with the warden to show there were no hard feelings and did it again for one of the photographers whose flashbulb hadn't gone off. Then the warden made his compulsory going-away joke, a variation of which has been found in Babylonian tablets of the 5th century B.C. Hope to see you again sometime, Harry, he said. Socially, that is. We all laughed, no one more heartily than the warden himself. After a conference with my lawyers, I went home to change. I took a long shower, punctuated by several refreshing jolts of scotch, and I was feeling almost subhuman by the time I arrived at the Blue Box, a medium-sized room below street level in midtown Manhattan. The uniformed personnel gave me a large hello, for I have spent many a pleasant dollar at the Blue Box since Sandra Burke started working there. John the doorman said, Welcome back, Mr. Horn. I read about it in the paper. Louise, the French hat-check chick, who has never bothered to learn much English, exclaimed, Harry, long time no see. Sue Ann, who sells cigarettes, leaned forward over her tray and made a kissing sound, disturbing the air in the neighborhood of my right ear. In heels, she is taller than I am, and I'm six one. Poor baby, she said. You look pale. They were keeping a table for me. Before I could sit down, I had to shake hands with the head waiter, a waiter, and two drunks. The waiter brought me a drink. 
Sander was in the middle of the rumble number from West Side Story. We're gonna hand them a surprise tonight. We're gonna cut them down to size tonight. She was wearing her usual working clothes, a flame-colored evening dress, which came off when given a smart tug from the rear. A New Yorker reporter had once compared her singing style to a building burning down during an electrical storm, and probably three-quarters of the customers were giving her their attention, which was high for a nightclub audience at this hour. We're gonna get up and have us a ball. They're gonna get it tonight. The more they turn it on, the harder they'll fall. Four youths in blue jeans and stomping boots, all their muscles showing from the navel up, came down on her and whipped off her dress. She proved to be wearing only a pinch or two of glitter. Her raiden immediately jumped another 20 points. Picking her up, the boys began playing catch. As she flew from one pair of hands to the next, she spotted me through the cigarette smoke in the dazzle of lights and waved her eyelashes at me, among other things. In the final stages of the routine, her partners made believe they were developing dizzy spells and butterfingers. After a few near misses, they walked off arguing about who would carry which end of Sandra, and a semi-hysterical master of ceremonies ran in to lead the applause. Sandra threw me a kiss as she took her bow. She gave me a real one a few minutes later in the doorway of her dressing cubicle backstage. It was good to be back. Prison hadn't been as bad as I expected. Not much different, in fact, from the army. But it had lacked many of the small amenities. After a long moment, she came down off her toes and looked at me in the dim light. Harry, you're tired. Exhausted, I said, and added, Bedtime? She laughed and went back to the dressing table to tone down her makeup, some of which she had just transferred to me. She gave the face in the mirror a professional appraisal. In my opinion, it looked equally well in each of the three panels. The mouth was sleepy. The eyes, with their theatrical makeup, were wide awake. She came by her blonde hair naturally. All in all, an unsettling girl. And by this time... I was back to normal. Don't forget I just got out of jail, I said. Most of us had calendars in our cells, but that's no substitute for women. How long were you in, Harry? Ten days, wasn't it? And don't forget the nights, ten days and ten nights. Which isn't exactly the same as twenty years. And as I was saying the night before you went up for sentence... When you were giving me the life in a lonely cell bit- Okay, okay, I said. I remember. I think you probably do, but I'm always glad to restate my policy. She looked at me over a poised Kleenex. Someday I hope to move to the Waldorf, where I'll be able to lean against a grand piano and keep my dress on. But meanwhile- Sure. Just because I've been booked into the blue box where the culture patterns seem to make it necessary, I know how you feel, I told her. Doesn't mean I make a practice of, of course not. So long as you realize it's nothing personal. I'm fond of you, Harry, but let's change the subject, I said. Did you know you're bleeding? Where? I showed her. That Ted, she said. I can't get him to cut his fingernails. Two hours later, as the crow flies, I was unlocking my apartment door. Sandra seemed nervous. 
I know this isn't very consistent, she said, but just because I think there are other things in life besides... I know, I said. Doesn't mean I don't have ordinary... human... She drifted in against me, her eyes closing. I don't want to lean over backward. I considered this a sensible remark, although she was leaning backward slightly as she said it. And it is true, she murmured. You've been in jail, haven't you? It seemed that my ten-day stretch in West Street was going to do me some good after all. The way the publicity was handled on it, I had gone through the locked doors with the Bill of Rights in one fist and a little American flag in the other. The magazine had hired an emotional lawyer to drop a number of famous names, such as Tom Paine, Thomas Jefferson, Peter Zenger, Elijah Lovejoy, and ending a small anticlimax, I thought, with the name of Harry Horn. Some months earlier, I had written a piece quoting an unnamed hoodlum on the subject of police corruption. I had been called before a grand jury and invited to give the man's name. I muttered something about freedom of the press. The DA asked me to say it louder. By that time, I had no choice, so I said it louder. Since New York is one of the few states without a statute permitting a reporter to keep quiet about his news sources, I went to jail for contempt. Not entirely as a matter of principle, however. The hoodlum I quoted happened to be a member of Louis Gelomino's circle. Gelomino, a prominent man, is well known for his temper, and he didn't need to send me a message. He had done that once before, when a charge of dynamite went off accidentally, while a hired shook was wiring it to the ignition of my car. He wouldn't have tried to kill me this time, it wasn't that important, but he would have asked a few boys to come and see me, and I might have spent a good deal longer than ten days in a hospital, so I chose the ten days in jail. Sandra was still wearing the scarlet dress. I had watched her do the delinquency number often enough, so I knew that the secret control was located between the second and third vertebra from the bottom, but removing her dress at this point would be premature. She pushed away and made a meaningless sound full of M's. All right, Harry, let's see the famous apartment. The girls at the club have been talking about it. Who, Luis? I hope you don't think that amounted to anything. I was thinking more of Sue Ann. Never mind, Harry. My eyes are open. She turned and walked down the hall to the rhythm of the tune that was still rattling through my head. Gonna rumpus tonight, gonna get up and have us a ball. I had left the light on in the living room. Inside the doorway, she dug in her heels and I walked into her. I thought she had been stopped by the Jackson Pollock, which covers one wall and is a little disturbing when come upon without warning, but it wasn't that at all. Ordinarily, her voice was warm and low, but now it went up at the same time as the temperature was going down. They didn't tell me you had a roommate. What are you talking about? When she got out of my way, I saw what she was talking about. I've been living in the same building for a number of years, and most of my furniture is old and battle-scarred. Only the sofa is new, and it is almost as conspicuous as the Pollock. It is long enough so I can stretch out on it at full length, and broad enough so, when luck is with me, someone can stretch out beside me. It is provided with hidden levers by which any eight-year-old child can transform it into a huge bed. I have trouble working them myself. At the moment, two high-heeled shoes were sprawled on the floor, 
where someone had kicked them off, and there was a tumble of feminine clothing on the sofa itself. Someone had undressed in my living room, it seemed, and the sex of that person was not in doubt. It was a hot summer night, and she hadn't been wearing much. Naturally, the garments that had come off last were on top. Somebody's been eating my porridge, Sandra said slowly. She went across the room and picked up a bra, letting it dangle between thumb and forefinger. And it can't be Goldilocks, can it? Because Goldilocks was only a child. Now wait a minute, I said. Don't jump to conclusions. She was swinging the bra like a shillelagh. Does this belong to anyone I know? That wasn't the point. Did it belong to anyone I knew? There wasn't anybody here earlier, I said. Then the explanation is simple, Sandra said. She has a key. It was true that one or two girls in Greater New York have keys to my apartment, say half a dozen, but I didn't think any of them would pull a dirty trick like this. They would phone first. It shouldn't be hard to find out, I said, and started for the bedroom. A girl's voice called from the bathroom. Sweetie, be out in a minute. The shower came on, and Sandra and I looked at each other. She was smiling, without warmth. And when I think, I almost went back on my principles. Sandra, I said, listen, would I ask you to come up if I knew there was anybody... I wonder, she said, tossing the bra into the heap of clothing and brushing her fingertips together. It's a big sofa. For God's sake! And now that I know you won't be lonely, I'll say goodnight. Have fun. Sure, I said bitterly. Convict on circumstantial evidence. I should have brought my lawyer and made it a double date. Didn't you ever hear of the Bill of Rights? Maybe somebody doesn't know I'm out and loan somebody one of my keys. Or it could be a frame-up. I have some so-called friends with a so-called sense of humor. Give me a minute. I pulled the bathroom door open. It was steamed up inside, but not nearly as much as I was myself. I yanked the shower curtain out of the way. Just what do you think you're... I got no farther. The water spurting out of the showerhead was falling against a dark-haired girl, hidden her just beneath the chin. From there, it coursed down her body, following the lines of least resistance and having many adventures on the way. It was a pleasant sight, an improvement over anything I had witnessed in the West Street Jail. After a time, I remembered what I wanted to find out, and I looked at her face. The ends of her dark hair were getting wet, and they would probably lose their wave. The hair crossed her forehead in a slanted fringe. She was wearing green eyeshadow, and she had done a good deal of work on her lashes. Her mouth was sullen. She seemed about twenty, or even younger. I had never seen her before, dressed or undressed. Hand me the soap, will you, honey? She said. Sure, right here. Then I said indignantly, The soap? Why should I do you any favors? I slammed back to the living room. Just as I thought, I said. I never set eyes on her in... But Sandra was, after all, the kind of girl who jumped the conclusions. My life, I finished, and ran out to the corridor. The automatic elevator that had brought us up was still at my floor. Sandra was inside. You'd better put in a signal tower to control the traffic, Harry, she said. But I don't know her. Somebody planted her on me. 
Sandra shook her head pityingly. The doors closed before I could get my hand between them to countermand her signal. I jabbed the down button viciously and watched the lights over the door. Maybe by the time she reached the lobby, she would realize that she was depriving me of my constitutional rights. I probably couldn't plead freedom of the press, but I knew the situation must be covered in the Constitution somewhere. The elevator came back empty. I'm not much of a man for flashbacks. I like to look ahead, and I was wondering if my cleaning woman had remembered to put out towels. On the way back, I looked at the door jam. Two parallel scratches showed where the lock had been forced. She was still in the shower. I saw a half-filled glass on the end table and ten or a dozen lipstick-tipped cigarettes in an ashtray. She hadn't smoked them down to the filter, but had rubbed them out impatiently after a few puffs. I made myself a drink. Having nothing else to do while I waited, I looked at her clothes. The dress was a red and white print. The label might have meant something to Sandra, but it didn't to me. She was carrying eight dollars and change in a shiny bag, along with a pair of horn-rimmed glasses and the usual feminine junk for maintenance and repair of the face and the fingernails. There was nothing to give her an identity. No social security card, no electric light bill, no wheedling request to subscribe to the Reader's Digest. I looked up. The shower was still on, but the girl was standing in the bathroom doorway looking at me, a towel knotted under one arm. Clean, I said. Is she gone? Hand me the soap, honey. Damn right she's gone. I don't suppose you'd be interested, but I've been trying to get her up here for two months. Gee, tough, she said. I thought creeps like you went to the girl's apartment. She lives with her sister and brother-in-law and three nephews and nieces. Does that answer your question? I thought we'd have more privacy here. What were you drinking, scotch? I guess so. I just poured something. Toss me my bag. I juggled it for a minute and threw it to her. She caught it awkwardly against her breast, took out her glasses, and put them on. And an interesting thing happened. She immediately looked more sexy, and she hadn't looked exactly unsexy before. Why not sit down and tell me what this is all about, I said. I'll brighten your drink and find you a dry towel. Or a pair of pajamas? Everybody knows there's nothing cuter than a girl in men's pajamas. I'd better be sure I'm in the right place, she said. You're Mr. Horn? Call me Harry, I said, after all. And you just got out of jail? Yeah, were you reading about me? She had used only one hand to catch the bag and put on her glasses. She was holding something in the other, wrapped in a washcloth. Now she unwrapped it and pointed it at me. It was a gun. I had been reaching for cigarettes. When I saw the gun, I not only stopped reaching, I stopped breathing. For a moment, we were both absolutely still. Her mouth twitched, as though she was trying to make her index finger twitch in sympathy, and I said, softly, I surrender. Stop it, will you? She said shrilly. You think this is funny? You'll find out different in a minute. I'm convinced, I said. That splashing you hear isn't the shower. It's adrenaline. I looked down at my hand, which to my annoyance was shaken visibly. I want to get a cigarette, and I'd appreciate it if you'd aim a little higher. That might be loaded. It's loaded. Don't worry about that. That's just the kind of thing I tend to worry about, I said. 
I shook out a single cigarette, moving carefully. I lighted it and dropped the matches onto the desk beside an ivory-handled paper knife, which I kept to slit open notices from my bank, telling me that I'm overdrawn. Until this moment, it had never occurred to me that I might want to slit something else open with it. You've got lipstick on your face, she said. You can wipe it off if you want to, so you won't look so silly when they find you. I took out a handkerchief, watching her through cigarette smoke. Uh, which side? Which side hell all over? I sat on the corner of the desk, leaning back, so my cigarette hand would graze the ivory handle of the knife. You actually intend to shoot me? Uh-huh, she said. But why? People don't usually shoot people without a reason. I've got a reason. Are you going to wipe off that lipstick or aren't you? I dabbed at my mouth and looked at the handkerchief. This isn't much good. Loan me your towel. Shut up, shut up! You still think I don't mean it, don't you? I'm beginning to think you mean it. The funny thing is, you look perfectly sane. Finish it up. I'm going to start counting backward in a minute. The gun made a spasmodic movement. The knot of her towel had come untied, and she was holding it in position with her elbow. This gave me an idea. It wasn't much of an idea, but it was the only one I could think of. This is going to sound like a stall, I said quickly. Hell, it is a stall. Think about it anyway. They made the walls in this place of construction paper. When the lady next door brushes her teeth, the glasses rattle in my kitchen. If you fire that thing, and naturally I'm hoping you'll decide against it, somebody's going to hear the bang. The local precinct is a block and a half away. If you have to stop and put your clothes on, the cops are going to be waiting downstairs. This is only a suggestion, but don't you think you better get dressed first? She looked thoughtful, continuing at the same time to look both sexy and dangerous. Maybe so. And who do you think's going to bust in and save you? The FBI? The FBI I knew had other fish to fry. She began to circle, moving the gun so it stayed focused on a spot above the bridge of my nose, where it would make a neat and perhaps even decorative little hole. When the back of her knee hit the sofa, she looked away for an instant, and I got my fingers on the ivory handle of the knife. She hesitated. I'd been wondering how she would get dressed with a towel in one hand and a gun in the other. She solved it the easy way. What am I being so modest about? She said in disgust. It unclamped her elbow. The towel dropped. Have you ever thought about going to work for Playboy? I asked after a moment, getting a better grip on the knife. God damn you, she cried. Why does anybody have to be such a bastard? I made a wide gesture with the folded handkerchief. Honey, believe me, my girl thought I was lying when I said I hadn't seen you before. But you ought to know I've never seen you before. If this is Jelamino's idea, tell me what he wants and maybe I'll do it. I went to jail, didn't I? Or maybe you've got the wrong man. Maybe somebody's been telling lies about me. What did I do for Christ's sake? Her lips trembled, and suddenly she seemed on the edge of tears. Nothing, I suppose. It's just like you... you college bastards. Pretend, pretend. Always somebody else's fault. I was beginning to feel like an actor who had wandered onto the wrong set during the filming of a violent melodrama. None of the dialogue made sense. Just for the record, I said, I was kicked out of college my freshman year. And that makes you one of the common people, doesn't it? 
I won't listen to one more word. She had begun to cry. The tears made her look younger and probably obscured her vision, but the single eye of the gun was clear and unwinking, and it continued to look at me. She groped through the pile of clothing, but it is difficult, if not impossible, to put on a pair of pants with only one hand. When she found the garment she was looking for, she shook it out and tried to insert one bare foot in the proper opening. The foot caught and she went off balance. For an instant, the gun was pointed away from me. I rolled off the desk, taking the knife. She fired before she brought the gun all the way up, and the bullet went into the floor. Until I heard the explosion, I hadn't really thought she would do it. She crouched, her glasses partly jarred loose but still on her nose, a serious and intent look on her face. She was steady in her right hand with her left, all wound up to blow off the top of my head as I came up at her. But that wasn't my idea. If getting behind a desk on hands and knees had been an Olympic event, they would have given me the gold medal. I was out of sight before she could fire again, and I jammed the thin blade of the knife into a vacant slot in the baseboard outlet. With a vicious spurt and crackle, the fuse blew. I knew the position of the furniture in the room, and she didn't, which gave me a small advantage. I picked up a chair and threw it at her. A standing lamp went over with a tinkle of breaking glass. I found out later that she fired again, but I didn't hear it. It went into the big non-objective painting, where it immediately took its place as part of the composition, as though Pollock, having subjected his canvas to the usual forms of abuse, had ended by shooting at it. I continued around the desk, keeping low. With my clothes on, she couldn't see me, but her body had a faint incandescence in the dark. I hit her above the knees with a rolling block. My only exercise these days is counter-punching a typewriter, but it doesn't take much science to knock over a small girl. She landed hard. My chin scraped across her breast, but until I could get her gun, she had no more sex characteristics than a tackling dummy. Our bodies crossed at the middle like a capital X. My hand slid along her arm and fastened on her wrist. Let go, I said. Don't, you're... She hit at my shoulders with her free arm. She was thrashing around beneath me, trying to throw me off. She was still damp from the shower, and I had to concentrate on the wrist to keep it from slipping away. I knew from the sound she was making that I was hurting her, but I thought she deserved something for shooting at me with live ammunition. I got my other hand on her wrist and went on knocking the back of her hand against the sharp edge of the sofa until I realized that the gun must have been jolted out of her hand when we landed. She instantly stopped being a tackling dummy and returned to her earlier status, which was that of a naked young girl, fully equipped by a benevolent mother nature. The wrought iron lamp was between us, but it wasn't enough. She was gasping for breath. New York is never entirely dark, even at this time of night, and I was aware of all the turbulence that was taking place beneath me. Please, she said. Pretty please, I suggested. Don't. That hurts. I ought to insist on a small forfeit, but we'll come to that later. Until I find your little gun, we're going to hold hands. She made a whimpering sound as I pulled her to her feet. It begins to sink in, I hope, I said. Without a gun, you're in trouble. I hauled her to the kitchen, where I found a candle left over from the last power failure, and hauled her back. I saw no reason to handle her gently. She had given me a scare. 
Now do what I tell you, I said. I pinned her into the angle the desk made with the wall. Feel on the desk and you'll find some matches. Light one for me. She didn't move until I said sharply, Cooperate. She found the matches and tore one off. It flared between us. Her eyes were dark and enormous, a little reflected fire blazing in each pupil. Her hand was shaken so badly that the match almost went out. I tried to hold it steady, but mine was shaken almost as badly. We finally succeeded in transferring the flame to the candle, and I moved the candle around until I saw the gun on the floor. It was a piece of rusty scrap iron, which looked as though it had been lying in a vacant lot for years, in all weathers. It no longer seemed dangerous. I picked it up gingerly and dropped it in my pocket. I wasn't telling the truth about one thing, I said. The nearest station house isn't a block and a half away. It's more like six or seven. If somebody's already called in, I can't do anything for you. You'll make a very nice caller. Breaking and entering, assault with a deadly weapon, indecent exposure. Not that I'm likely to press charges on that. She lifted her chin, showing her first sign of spirit since losing the gun. I can tell them a thing or two myself. Fine, I said, but why not tell me? Maybe everybody who heard the shot rolled over and went back to sleep. You never know in New York. I won't guarantee anything, because I don't like people to shoot at me particularly when I don't know why. Tell me about it, and who knows? I might get soft-hearted. The candlelight was very good to her. As I lowered the candle, shadows moved across her body. She pushed at her black hair warily. Can I get dressed first? Sure, I'd like to see how you look with your clothes on. I'll get something to put the candle in. I found an empty gin bottle in the kitchen. She was getting her clothes together when I came back. One of her shoes had been kicked under the desk, and she had to crawl for it. Stopping in the doorway, I tilted the candle and began to build a sleeve of melted wax in the neck of the bottle. You damn dirty, she said, and ran up to me, clutching the bundle of clothes to her breast. As she reached me, she pushed one hand out hard and hit me in the stomach. I grunted. She stepped back, the back of her hand going to her mouth. I looked down. The ivory handle of the paper knife, which she had pulled out of the baseboard plug, stuck out of my shirt above my belt buckle. None of the blade was showing. The candle in the bottle became too heavy to hold. They dropped to the floor. The girl took one more backward step, then whirled and ran. I started after her, trying to say something. A door slammed. Somewhere in the city, a siren was wailing. I swerved toward the phone. I needed help, all the help I could get. All at once I began running downhill very fast. I ended on the floor, twisting as I fell so I didn't come down on the knife. As yet, there was no pain. My fingers closed on the ivory handle. I couldn't decide which would be worse, to leave it there or pull it out. Not far from me, the candle flame licked at the carpet. The shower continued to drum in the bathroom, and the sound was becoming more and more ominous, as though I lay bound and gagged in the bottom of a runaway canoe, which was racing toward the lip of a waterfall. I reached for the candle, and with my last flicker of consciousness, I slapped out the flame. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Out of the Frying Pan into the Funeral. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, 
It can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.